Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. Uh, guys, it's Germany's super election year, kicking off this weekend with state and regional elections. Wolfgang, what can we expect on Sunday in Germany? The big issue to watch out for is not necessarily whether the CDU is losing the election. They will probably lose the elections. Now, we're recording this on Friday. So if you listen to this on Sunday at eight o'clock and you know the outcome, you will have, you will know than we do now. But the polls are suggesting this is not going to be a good day for the CDU. They had hoped to capture the two states. These are traditional CDU states. Rheinland-Palatinate is the state of Helmut Kohl. Uh, that was a classic CDU-run state until the 1990s and early 2000s, and they had a good chance to recapture it. Uh, Baden-Württemberg in the, in the southwest of Germany used to be a classic CDU state, but it's uh, become a green state. And the CDU is trailing the Greens by some 10 percentage points in the polls. Now, what we need to look out for is whether the CDU disappoints relative to what we expect today. Because it's all about sort of story building. The CDU has gone in the opinion polls down from something like almost 40% a few months ago to about 30% nationwide. That's terrible. And, you know, it's it's not what they had hoped to, the, the state to be in. We've had scandals. There were a couple of CDU people who were selling, you know, basically when, when the country, when the pandemic struck, they were basically getting suppliers, some deals on face masks. And that was obviously unacceptable. Uh, another scandal came out yesterday. Someone tried to help an Azerbaijan company to land a deal in Germany. I mean, one gets the sense that some of these CDU MPs are in, the, in it for the money. And um, it's a classic old-fashioned graft scandal that tends to happen in political parties at the end of a, of a long period in government. That's something where people get very certain of themselves, certain of their influence, when structures are very much set in stone, where they know how to work the system. And, you know, the, the people are kind of fed up with this and this, that is sort of registered in the poll. So the question is whether the CDU, whether this is sort of done enough. I don't think it has done enough yet. If these results on Sunday are worse than we think, then it might get very difficult for Armin Laschet to claim the the leadership, uh, not so much of his party, but become the chancellor candidate for CDU, CSU. And that would favor Markus Söder. If the CDU does as badly as we expect, they might just swing it. They might just say, okay, we had a bad period. We're going to do the turnaround. If things improve in, a few, in the next few weeks, you know, that he might still be in there with sort of a, with a chance. But so far, you know, CDU is not doing well. Laschet is not very popular. This hasn't changed. The fact that he became leader hasn't changed his popularity. The CDU rallied behind the establishment candidate because that's what everyone in the CDU wanted. They, they wanted to stop Merz, who is, you know, someone they, you know, the leadership of the CDU intensely dislikes. But the price they're paying for that sort of fixing the election type operation is that, you know, they are, they are now struggling and they weren't struggling six months ago and they cannot afford just to have their favorite candidate being the chancellor candidate because they might lose another 5%. And if they lose another 5% and the Greens gain another 5%, then the CDU is no longer the largest party and the chancellor candidate won't become the chancellor. 
uh, and it might be we might have a very different coalition then. We're hearing for the first time that commentators saying that the, these elections could be very interesting, and it's not clear that the CDU will win it. The only thing one can say now that the it is very difficult to see at this stage that a government can be formed without the Greens. It is actually conceivable that a government can be found, formed without the CDU, um, and that would be in the situation where the CDU loses, the Greens gain, and the Social Democrats gain. And then the left, the three parties of the left would have a narrow majority. They're still 10 points away from this. So it would require a 5% swing from the right to the left, which is possible, which is within what campaigns in Germany usually do. So, so I would think this is not something I predict or expect, but I'd say, you know, don't put a 0% probability to it because clearly it isn't. I'm, I recall Gerhard Schröder, he achieved much bigger swings. There was at the, the election when he got, when, you know, when he got ousted in 2005, he started with 25% and the CDU started with 50% and they ended with both of them 34%, just the CDU narrowly ahead, but only by a very short, uh, small margin uh, of less than a hundredth of a percentage point. So he almost clinched it. And this would have been a 25% swing. And, you know, that that's what an election can do. So it's all to play for. And the CDU had an extraordinarily bad year. And you know, all this sort of advantage, incumbent advantage that the pandemic produced in Germany last year is completely gone. Now for the CDU, 2020 was a great year and 2021 is a bad year so far. They really need to find a way to turn it around. And once sort of, once the rut starts, this is difficult. Yeah. It's like you were saying, it's practically inconceivable to look back on 2020 as the good old days, but it definitely does seem to be the situation with Germany. Um, Just spitballing here, but what would Germany look like under a left-leaning government? What they would do is they would loosen the strings on fiscal policy. The Greens definitely want more investment. Um, the, the SPD would want its, an increase in social spending. They would put up taxes, that's for sure. And so there would be a shift, but they would also increase the deficit. The three parties would actually uh, favor a reform of the debt break, the German, you know, the German version of the stability pact. But they, that would require a two-thirds majority, which there wouldn't be in the Bundestag, if, especially if there is a left-wing government. But what they can do is they can suspend the debt break and they can, you know, there, there are ways of, there are ways, legal ways of getting around it. Uh, they would exploit those legal ways to the maximum. They would also be in favor of reform of the stability pact. So you could, you could probably get a sort of a fiscal, a fiscal thing. It would, might be like an opportunity. It right? would be an opp- yeah. definitely an opportunity for the, for the EU because they would get the EU out of a, out, out of a gridlock. You know, obviously reforms would be bad. Digitalization, this is not, these are not digital people. The, the SPD and the left party have very old industrial views. This will not be an environment for entrepreneurs. There would be pluses and minuses. On the macro side, probably plus. On the micro side, probably not so. There would be issues on where they would disagree on internally, like, you know, relations with Russia. The SPD and the left party would be strong pro-Russian. Uh, the Greens would be strong anti-Russian. So you'd have very strong views of differences of views, for example, 
affecting, you know, relation, you know, the, the gas pipeline will probably by then, since the Biden administration isn't going to do anything about yeah. it. So this gas pipeline will probably happen. And by that time, it will no longer be an issue uh, for the coalition. It, you know, once the, once it's switched on, it's switched on. Uh, therefore, the uh, the issue may not just come up. If it did come up, the Greens would be um, uh, not very happy. But you know, this is a coalition; they can get some stuff, but they won't get others. So they yeah. would they might just swallow this turd. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it, it's um, it's um, it's. It's not a likely scenario, I have to say. Yeah, okay. uh, the likely scenario is really a coalition of the CDU, CSU, with the Greens. You know, it's it's a possible scenario in the sense that you know you need a, if you get the ten percent swing, yeah, and then it is possible. But if you don't, then it's the CDU, CSU, Greens, yeah. and that's going to be a, a you know it, this is a scenario where it's a, either a really good scenario where the Greens go ahead with environmental investments and the CDU does micro you know lower taxes etc. Mm-hmm. But it could be the up the opposite that the CDU just blocks the, any any reforms and the green green blocks anything the CDU wants and basically it's a gridlock government yeah. quite possible too so it, it depends on whether that coalition is forward looking or just whether they just try to block each other it's it's not clear from the outset but at least it has a potential for good stuff that's basically what it is now but the CDU, the interesting question for now is really is the CDU going to reverse that decline that sort of started really started in the autumn it wasn't registered in the polls at the time but it's really start people started to become unhappy with the crisis management yeah. didn't immediately translate into voting behavior but started to do that now these consequences often happen with a delay yeah. so even if the vaccination program comes up don't expect that this would lead to an immediate change in the political fortunes of parties because you know people went through this you know people would have died and you know the sense, sense that the government isn't working well will still prevail it's not like that this is a great government that won't we won't be in that position yeah. And that's, I mean, you were writing about that this week as well. I think um, Merkel's dead and how people are beginning to make the link between deaths by COVID and, and lack of vaccinations. So that's already happening, starting to happening. happen. Yes, right. Absolutely. And I think that's the reason why people are, are becoming so politically so, why well, this is becoming politically tight because mm-hmm. the COVID vaccination campaign, I, I noted some figures in France, it's getting starting there. The Germans yeah. are vaccinating like 150,000 a, a day, which for a country the Germany size is not a lot. I mean, the, the, the UK is, done, is no longer vaccinating as much as it did in the beginning, but they, they have now vaccinated like 40% of the population or something. It's now or 35. It's now we, they've now got at least the vulnerable age groups going. Yeah. They only relax the schools, so there will be an increase in infections. Mm-hmm. But the question is how much? And if this is manageable, then one could uh, expect another round. And also one has to say that you know none, no vaccine is 100 yeah. percent Therefore, you know, there will still be cases of people who fall ill. Mm-hmm. There will still be cases of people who die. Yeah. Um, because the vaccine will not protect them. They, they will, they are here in the UK erring on the side of caution and it should also tell us that in other countries the vaccine program won't start from zero to 100 in a, in a week or so this, this is a process that will take a few months 
until it sort of reaches critical mass when they can relax it. The question I have with the, with the vaccination in Europe is, you know, will they get there in time to relax it for the holidays? Yeah. It doesn't look to me there. They are at the moment. If you start in April, uh, it's a highly risky thing to start relaxing in the holidays because when everyone comes back and the, the case numbers rise, as happened last year, and now we have sort of different variants like South African and the UK variant, the question then could be we could have a very sort of strong rise in case numbers in September and possibly another lockdown. And that's the time when Germany holds elections. Uh, so the question then, it would be, you know, the politics of it will become even worse than than what it is now. Yeah. Uh, did we want to talk about Hungary and Orban and his bold uh, moves yes. too? Yes. yes. Yeah. Let's talk about um, um, Victor Orban. Oh, oh yeah. Because Susanna, you were writing about how you were kind of crunching the numbers this week and looking at what would happen if the ECR and ID managed to get Salvini and Orban all together to form a massive evil front in European Parliament. Yes, if you take them all together, they, um, the two far-right groups, the ID and the ECR, I mean, before before Brexit, there was no question that these two would ever form a coalition. But now, of course, after Brexit, that's a different story because the Tories are out there. The Tories were the most outspoken opponents of any alliance with the ID. Uh, but now that the Tories are out, uh, it looks very different because uh, the leading party in the ECR is now the Polish uh, BIS uh, on the one hand. and there are close links with the Orban Spidosh party. Both at home have quite a majority government and both have teamed up quite many times. I think you wrote about it before. They, they teamed up against European politics, against Brussels yeah. uh, quite successfully, right? Mm -hmm. um, and now if you take all these together and, and you look at the numbers, I mean, the, the, the missing link with Viktor Orban, if he can talk to Salvini, if he can talk to the Polish uh, BIS, uh, and would be sort of the super binding link between the two. We look at hundred. I mean, all of them together, are 150 uh, MEPs, which would would put them in the second position in yeah. terms of the European Parliament, which is like massive. Yeah. Um, so I mean, with once you get bigger, of course, it comes with more power in the European Parliament. So you would have more speaking time. You would uh, be high up on the agenda. So speaking second after the first one. I mean, they quite kind of committees, I guess. Yeah, yeah committees. But let, let's first take the uh, speaking time. They can frame the debates, right? And this is really important. Once mm -hmm. uh, they start a debate, they would come second after the EPP. Yeah. And this really frames the debate, what comes up or what the Social Democrats then afterwards can do. And the second thing, as you mentioned, uh, committees, yeah, I think you wrote about that before as well. I mean, yeah. uh, of, um, uh, midterm uh, legislative reshuffle uh, and normally there was a front against all far right. Yeah, the cordon sanitaire. That's cordon not going to last anymore. Yes, exactly. Those days are over. <laughs> so. Those days are over. If you are the second largest group, that's no longer can be ignored. So definitely that would change politics. And the other thing to notice is that if you have a new group, that group would be represented in the European Council by two member states. Yeah. You would have Hungary and, oh, yeah. and, and yeah. Poland both be members of that and um you know who knows what happens in france or italy but the you know georgia meloni is the leader of the fast advancing fratelli d'italia she's sort of 
falling now at 18%. Salvini is still ahead of her, but give it give it another year for him to support the Draghi administration. We don't know what happens to the polls. Any discontent with the Draghi administration will translate into support for her. So she might well be the Italy's next prime minister. So that would make it three if an accident happens in France. That makes it four. So you're basically looking then at this grouping, uh, having blocking minorities and becoming a major power player in the EU. And we are, you know, in France, we are, you know, arrow margins of polls away from that. Yeah. And, you know, it might not happen. It's not, I'm saying I predict this to happen, but we are in a position where we could say that based on ex- we are existing polls, we are within the margin of error of these polls, of these events happening and having such a high representation of the far right in, in Europe. So. The people who thought that just with the election of in the United States that the, 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 this is the end of populism, I think they're very <laughs> about that. Um, yeah. Well, I think you can definitely see those worries too in the way that the EPP is trying to to reposition itself now. I will give them credit, you know, getting rid of Fidesz, if that was actually what they intended to do with those changes in their internal regulations, was kind of an effort that the Republican Party in the U.S. has not been able to undertake, which is to get rid of the more maniacal far-right elements of its group. Well, that's great. So we are basically saying that the CDU and the EPP are, are not as bad as Trump. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. But that's one interesting thing about it is that what you were talking about, this kind of large grouping of the far-right, it's getting harder and harder to call them maniacs right now, right? Because soon they might be the majority, and then that would make us, the rest of us, the maniacs. Right. And so, I mean, you see the EPP now moving to counter this shift. And so what I was writing about this week is that they've been breaking with Germany's position on a lot of issues like corporate due diligence, uh, like China. And then just yesterday on kind of some climate regulations that would have been not so favorable to EU companies. And this could be viewed as either, you know, an attempt to distinguish themselves, to kind of separate themselves, regain the moral high ground. Uh, do some image rehabilitation after so long with Fidesz, or it could also be an effort to kind of attract more voters so that they manage to stay in power and, and remain, if not the majority, then at least the ones still calling the shots. I think, like, I'm worried to see how this is going to play out because, as you said, Susanna, you're right. If these far right groupings all manage to conglomerate somehow to to merge and join forces, then they would be the second largest in European Parliament. And the way the polls are looking. It's not just in France, but in, in Spain, you know, you can see similar trends in Italy, as you mentioned, Wolfgang, there's definitely very worrying trends for those of us who do not support that kind of politics. It's, it's sad to see. And you hope that it's a trend that's reversed, hopefully through maybe recognition by national and EU level parties that the way they do politics has to change. Absolutely. I mean, in Italy is the case. I mean, Italy is a country that hasn't seen productivity growth since it joined the euro. So Italian voters go through a process that they try all alternatives. They they go with the left, they go with the right, they go with the center. The one thing they haven't tried is the far right. So that's the (laughs) next thing they're trying. Frankly, this is what happens. I mean, you can say whether you like it or not. This is what always happens when policy fails. Yeah. And when policy fails over decades, then, you know, democracy is in, in danger and there comes some kind of authoritarian pushback. The authoritarian pushback we see in much parts of Eastern Europe and in Russia was basically the response to ultra-liberalization, what that was attempted yeah. after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the uh, communism. And, um, you know, the history tells us that. We can, we can hyperventilate order. about Putin, but that's the kind of thing that happens 
yeah. after a period of ultra-liberal uh, regime. We've had this in the Czech Republic when Václav Klaus berated everybody for not being liberal enough, uh, <laughs> including Americans and Germans. And now, you know, they have not, they're ending up with an authoritarian, you know, quasi-authoritarian uh, government. Yeah. It happens everywhere. And it happens, and it may happen in Italy. Um, Italians are, you know, mild by comparison. They've been very patient with their, with their leaders. They have supported establishment parties for a very long time. They tried Five Star. That didn't kind of work out for as many people who thought that Five Star would bring the change. It's now very much an establishment party. And they will, I have no doubt, try Meloni, who is, uh, you know, who is as a figure not as divisive as uh, Salvini, who is a clever politician. She, there, let there be no doubt, she is on the far right. And unlike Salvini, she doesn't have these businessmen and she doesn't have this, she doesn't have to make these compromises that Salvini still has to make because mm-hmm. he has a lot of small, medium sized businesses from Northern Italy on his, you know, in, um, among his voters and sponsors. So he can't, he can't drift to the extreme right. Mm-hmm. And these people are pro European by nature, by definition, because they're businesses and they, they're linked in with, in their business with, with their neighboring countries. That will be an interesting thing to watch if she becomes sort of the senior partner in that coalition. It will yeah. still be a coalition of the right uh, of three or four parties. But, but it would look very different. I mean, the motivation yeah. is very different in France. Uh, I have to say it's very, um, I mean, Marine Le Pen's attraction is not really with a strong kind of far right uh, constituencies, because if you look at the voters, there's an overlap with actually far left with uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's yeah. Uh, party, uh, party, and uh, it suggests that she's just responding very well on the territory, on the terrain, uh, in the countryside with farmers and people. Uh, she has this down-to-earth kind of look, and she has this down-to-earth pragmatism that she's uh, she's sort of um, emanating uh, as a persona, and that responds very well uh, to people compared with this very mindy and Jupiter-like uh, Emmanuel Macron. I think it's more that that's sort of worrying at the moment. Uh, if you look at the polls, they, they suggest that um, still the majority thinks that uh, she's not really fit to govern as a governor. That doesn't stop them from voting in the first round. So it's more of a protest vote. The, the danger is really that people abstain from the elections and therefore make it more likely for her to end up in the second round and even uh, then also win if too many people are defected. So I think the story of the far right is it a very different one in France compared to the one in England, Italy. Yeah, shall we talk about the ECB now and its uh, holistic policy making? What is going on there, Wolfgang? What is what is Lagarde up to? We, we covered the sort of the technical bits of the ECB's monetary policy decisions in the briefing. What strikes me particularly, you know, we are not at the moment of big policy decisions. It's all about how you pace the asset purchases, whether you do a bit more now or a bit more later. They kind of cleared this up now. There was a bit of confusion. That's not kind of out of the way. What is striking? Though is um, you know is the is the significantly different style of Christine Lagarde in in her communication to an extent that people you know including myself find you know we are bewildered we had more clarity before she spoke than after <laughs> and she says things like you know we're not in the business of controlling the yield curve which is kind of saying okay I mean you know we, you're not targeting the yield curve but saying not controlling the yield curve I mean the whole idea of asset purchases to reduce interest rates. 
long-term interest rates. So you are not in full control of it, but you are kind of controlling the yield curve. If, if you don't control the yield curve, what is this about? But what really struck me yesterday was the statement that because Joe Biden had by yesterday not yet signed the stimulus bill, he signed it yesterday, but by the yeah. time the ECB met there, he hadn't actually put his pen to the state. They could not factor it in their monetary policy. Yeah, is, weird. I have never heard a thing like that, that the ECB in its forecast and policy decision can only rely on foreign policy events that are actually passed into law, which is not true. I mean, from, you know, we all rely on information, market intelligence. You know, it doesn't have to be certified by an auditor, that information. I mean, it's it seems, you know, I mean, I, we know Christine Lagarde is a lawyer. She has a sort of a, a legal mind. And, you know, in, in European politics, that's always an advantage because it's, you know, the legal questions come up everywhere and they come up in monetary policy, as we've seen with all these court cases. But when you're discussing the outlook of the world economy and inflation, it's surprising that this has such a high priority and, and, and not where people don't say, okay, here's a 1.9 trillion stimulus and there's going to be another stimulus coming later. <laughs> what? How is that going to affect our environment? It's not an unreasonable question to ask, but I think it is unreasonable to say, yeah, it hasn't been signed into law yet, so I need to, we can basically safely ignore it. And that seemed odd, an odd communication that leaves people at best sight sort of questioning what's going on. My hunch is that she is... Very different from Draghi, who was leading the council and trying to build coalitions. So he was really putting his mark on it, whereas she is more likely to seek a consensus inside the council and present that consensus to the outside world. That's a different different job. I'm not saying this is a necessarily a bad thing, except that in the last you know year and a half since she's been there, there, there hasn't been any big policy conflict. I mean, there was the pandemic, of course, and the ECB did something, but it wasn't a controversial thing. But looking at what's coming ahead, the exit from the pandemic, you know, inflation, uh, there are going to be policy differences among in, in her council that people will disagree. You know, I, nobody disagreed that the ECB should act to counteract the pandemic. But if there will be disagreement on whether we should tolerate or overshoot on inflation, and uh, there will be disagreement on whether we should sell the assets we bought, that's absolutely guaranteed that this, this disagreement will come up. And then the question will arise, what is the leader's, you know, what's the president's position? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just wondering whether this is something we are underestimating uh, at this point. Yeah. And what holistic, isn't that? Oh, I think it's there. just, I think we just needed a new word that it has not been sort of passed, loaded with meaning from all sorts and uh, holistic seems to fit the bill and it's sort of good feeling, the good feeling word that has not had a track record of what it means. So you can reveal and conceal at the same time. <laughs> bullshit in other words. I mean, a, we can basically call it by now. I mean, what, what you referred to was, uh, was clearly uh, the fact that the, the ECB looks at the entire chain, the monetary uh, transmission mechanism and each node of the chain, which is perfectly right. But they started that under Draghi. They did this. This was the whole idea of the credit support, the whole idea of these LTROs, these conditional LTROs. They really micromanaged the flows in a way they never did this before. This was the big innovation of the Draghi administration. They didn't call it holistic. <laughs> and, you know, they, I mean, we should be careful. And I'm, I'm reacting quite strongly to this because what we've done in the EU, we always put marketing terms in. 
vaccines. Yeah. And, you know, the EU is, you know, results on the vaccine program. They, I mean, you know, we have a green vaccine passport and, and oh, yeah. <laughs> what uh, was that? rather than delivering on the, on the, on the actual issues. And people actually start noticing that. See, I mean, we've yeah. been noticing that since ever this famous Juncker investment plan, which was a complete <laughs> fraud, uh, because they, you know, they, they sold us something that was 300 billion and it wasn't, it was hardly anything, but then now they did it with vaccines and people start noticing it. Yeah. Um, now we're doing this in the ECB, putting marketing names to these things and calling it holistic. Uh, when it is actually something that's you know not been invented by her, I mean she didn't she inherited that program. It's a good program, and it's right that she defends it. And uh, but I think the uh, this this sort of this uh, this language I I kind of resent. I have to say, yeah. Uh, and I you know I will I will keep pointing this out. <laughs> yeah, well, good. I mean, Paige, let's talk about the Netherlands because you wrote about you you followed up. There's going to be elections. So what's going to happen? Is Mark Rutte going to win again? Oh God. Yeah, the way the polls are looking now, and just given this man's track record, I think he probably is going to wind up being the next Dutch prime minister again. This guy, they call him Mr. Teflon, and you can really see why uh, his entire cabinet has resigned and is only on in a caretaker capacity right now after a horrible social benefit scandal that really crucified tens of thousands of families in the Netherlands uh, for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, The whole cabinet resigned because of this. He's still caretaker, but it hasn't dented him in the polls at all. So I want, I mean, I want to say don't trust the polls, but at this point in time, I mean, it really is looking like Rita is going to wind up being the leader who takes the biggest share of the votes next week. Um, He's still going to have to build a coalition, I think, because no one right now is giving him more than 25%. So he is going to have to build a coalition with any one of the, God, I think it's, I think there are 17 parties now that have a shot of uh, winning seats in parliament, at least 15 that are consistently polling and will. I think the big problem for him is not so much going to be winning the election as it is forming a coalition afterwards. Because if you remember the last Dutch elections, it took them 225 days to actually build their last coalition. And that is problematic if they want to get going on recovery fund spending, if they want to kind of get moving on, on pulling the country out of this crisis that that everyone in Europe is facing right now. As for why Rutte remains so popular in the Netherlands, uh, if you look at some of the the pieces and profiles that have been published on him in recent months, it's basically because he stands for nothing. He doesn't have a big vision. He doesn't have any grand ideals. He's very consistent. He's very stable. He still lives in the same apartment that he bought right after he graduated. He still bicycles to work. He cycled to the king to tender his resignation. He's seen as very, very down to earth and he's not trying to shake things up in any way. Um, and so that might explain why he is Mr. Teflon. It's like Merkel, no? I mean, right? she's living a modest life. <laughs> exactly. Everybody likes her. She stands exactly. for nothing. Yeah, exactly. But that's really um, benefited him in this case. And now you see that um, the PVV, the far right party, is still in second place in the Netherlands. Rutte and Wilders were meant to have a debate, but I think Wilders backed out. I think he said he didn't want to go on TV to do it. Then the CDA, which is a, a junior coalition partner, they're in third place. And people had been saying Wapke Hoekstra, who is the leader of the CDA and the finance minister, he might actually stand a chance at, at unseating Rutte. And he even kind of tried to brand himself like Rutte in the beginning, saying that he's really more of a manager than a politician. But we really saw how bad of a politician he is this campaign. So it's been for him one misstep after another. 
he was annihilated in a debate with the leader of the Greens Party. He was, you know, he's been very inconsistent on criticizing and calling for austerity and just generally has come off very awkward in a leader's debate where they fielded questions from the public. He he did very terribly in that one. So again, this really hasn't shifted the balance of the polls that much, but if people were expecting Hoekstra to be a kind of come from behind surprise candidate who's going to topple, you know, the existing order in the Netherlands, I don't see that happening. I don't think it's going to happen next week. All right. Well, thanks for listening until next time.